So I'm excited today. Look at all of you who braved, brove, no, braved the rain to be here with us. Uh, That is great. I'm also excited because I don't know if you guys remember, it was uh, several weeks before Christmas even, I almost passed out here at the uh, podium trying to give a sermon when I was a little sick. But ever since then, uh, I've been pretty congested and coughing and it's still a little bit there, but today, uh, to follow up on Liam's prayer, I was able to sing. In weeks past, I just, uh, you know, was humming along there with you guys. But, but when, you, when you can't do something, you, you sort of miss it. And so it was great this morning to be able to sing, to worship the Lord in song. Let me begin the message today by asking you a question. Is it your, you don't have to answer, no show of hands, because that would be maybe embarrassing. Is it your habit to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ? And if so, what do you pray for them? Is your focus predominantly on their emotional, physical needs, their health, comfort, safety, success in school, work, financial security, good relationships? All of which are important, by the way. But is there more? Is there more that we should pray for? And the answer is a resounding yes. There's much more. And today, as we continue our study through Paul's letter to the Colossians, he provides us with at least some of the much more. If you remember from last week in verse 3, he encouraged the Colossians, by writing, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So he's thankful for them and he's praying for them. Now in verses 9 through 14, that's the passage we're looking at today, we discover exactly what Paul is praying for them. And you might be surprised at what we find or don't find. There are no appeals for physical health, well-being, security, safety, earthly success, or relational harmony. Instead, Paul has two major prayer points, two major things he prays for the church in Colossae. And as we look at these two points, there are two applications for us. First, and maybe obviously, as we see how Paul prays for the Christians in his day, We can learn how to pray for one another in our day. So this is a lesson. We're going to get lessons on how to pray for one another. And second, and maybe less obvious, as Paul prays specific things for the Colossian Christians, we can be assured that these are things that we as Christians should pursue in our lives. The fact that Paul, the apostle, Inspired by the Spirit of God, praise something for believers means it's something believers should seek after, should have in their lives. Does that make sense? Good. So now we turn to the first of Paul's two uh, major prayer points. Paul prays for there the Colossians' spiritual maturity. Verse 9. And so, from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul and his companions pray that the Colossian Christians will have the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
This is a prayer for their spiritual maturity, a filling with knowledge and understanding of God's will. Paul's praying that they would know what God desires for them and of them. Now, this prayer is applicable to all Christians. We all need to grow in our knowledge of God's will. We all need to increase our spiritual wisdom and our understanding. However, there was an immediate need for an application for this for the Colossian Christians. As we saw last week, if you're with us, they were under attack by false teachers. False teachers were saying they needed a new philosophy, a new way of thinking, special knowledge, wisdom, and understanding that would add to and correct the gospel they'd already received from Epaphras. So if you remember, Epaphras converted in Ephesus, came home to Colossae and taught the gospel, the basic gospel. And these false teachers are saying, well, it was okay, but there's more. Remember verse 8, chapter 2, Paul wrote, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. This false philosophy was based on things of this world, not on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And apparently, some were falling prey to these false teachers. So Paul prays that they will be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul wants to counter this false philosophy with the knowledge of God, with the knowledge of God's will. Now, the Greek word Paul chooses for knowledge here is interesting. Often in the New Testament, the word gnosis, spelled with a G or transliterated with a G, N-O-S-I-S, is used when speaking of knowledge. Gnosis is a, a general term for knowing something. However, here and in other places, Paul chooses the related word of epinosis. Epinosis is knowledge based on a full understanding of something. It's a more precise and correct knowledge. And Paul often uses it to refer to knowledge of God. In verse 9, it's knowledge of His will. And in verse 10, Paul prays for an increasing in the knowledge, the epinosis of God. Paul desires that his Colossian brothers and sisters, his brothers and sisters in Christ, be filled have a precise and correct knowledge of God and His will. Why? Because he knew that, that a, a growing, precise, correct knowledge of God and His will is the, uh, is the greatest, most important thing to the spiritual life and maturity of all Christians. We find similar prayers in a number of his epistles. If you want to read the beginning of uh, Philippians and then Philemon, and, and, and here let me give the example from Ephesus. In Ephesians 1, 16 and 17, he wrote, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Sounds pretty similar to what he's saying to the Colossians. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Epinosis of him. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, places great value on what believers know about God and his will. Again, notice the intensity of his prayer for the Colossians. We have not ceased to pray for you. The pr the, this prayer for epinosis was not a one-time thing. Apparently, Paul and his fellow workers prayed for, like this all the time. 
And I want us to, to think about not only the prayer for this uh, correct, precise knowledge, the spiritual wisdom and understanding, but how is, how is this prayer answered? How would the Colossians and how will the uh, Riversiders, Riversidians, what are we? Anybody know? Riversiders? I like that one better. How will the Colossians and we become spiritually mature? And the answer is through the work of the Holy Spirit in their and our lives. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer, empowers us to understand the things of God. He gives us uh, understanding beyond what we would have without Him, clearly. He fills us with knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul is praying for a work of the Spirit in the lives of the Colossian believers. But how does the Spirit work? Well, he doesn't just implant knowledge in our heads. Just because someone's praying that you have knowledge doesn't mean, oh, oh, I didn't know that before, now I know it now. Nothing in between. Yes, he's with us, helping us, leading us, guiding us, comforting us, convicting us, but he doesn't just magically give us knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. He uses what theologians call means to fill us with these things. And the primary means he uses, the Holy Spirit, that is, is the Spirit-inspired Word of God. As Paul wrote to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out, Spirit-inspired, by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The God-breathed, Spirit-inspired uh, Scripture teaches, reproves, corrects our wrong knowledge, our wrong philosophies, the wrong things we think about God, and, and, it, and it reveals to us the cor- correct precise knowledge of God and His will. The Scriptures, therefore, are, are, are our primary source of the knowledge of God's will. And as we who are in relationship with God, uh, being led by the Holy Spirit, study the Word, a mature Christian mind, which is what Paul is praying for, is developed. So have you prayed for the spiritual maturity of your fellow believers? If you pray for me, your pastor, uh, I hope you pray this. Paul's prayer for the Colossians is what I need you to pray for me. I think it's what we need to be praying for each other. It's important to pray, pray this for new believers who can be subject to false teaching, can be led away. But ultimately, it's something you should pray for yourself and for every believer. And we ought to be part of the answer to our prayers. We should not only spend time reading, meditating, studying God's Word personally, but we should be people who encourage our fellow believers to do the same. We should encourage one another in the Word. We should encourage one another to be in the Word. Because every believer should be able to recognize and reject the seductive false philosophies of this world. And that recognition 
recognizing comes from a true understanding, a correct, precise understanding of God and His will. By having that correct, precise knowledge, wisdom, and understanding about God and His Word, we can combat the false philosophies of the world and we can grow in our relationship with Him. So the first major point of Paul's prayer for the saints in Colossae is their spiritual maturity. And then second, Paul prays for their earthly walk. Their, uh, how they walk on earth, how they live. We'll, we'll see that. Out of their knowledge of God's will flows their walk in this world. Verse 10. So, connecting to what he just prayed for, so... As to walk, this is a continuation of the prayer. Give them, uh, fill them with knowledge, spiritual wisdom, understanding, so as to walk in, in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, throughout the Old Testament, uh, the word walk symbolically referred to one's behavior, what you do, how you live. And this carried over into the Greek New Testament. In the Hebrew mind, knowledge what you know, and behavior, how you live, were tied together. A person didn't truly know or believe something unless he did it. As James, a Hebrew, wrote, faith, what you believe to be true, by itself, if it does not have works, matching behavior is dead. And in the same way, knowledge without matching behavior is dead. You don't truly know it if you're not acting based on it. So Paul prays for the knowledge of God's will, but it's not knowledge for knowledge's sake. The purpose of this knowledge of God's will is so they might walk based on God's will. And what does that kind of walking look like? Well, Paul prays, uh, <clears throat> Paul prays for and describes at least six characteristics of a walk that flows from the knowledge of God's will. And again, what follows is both the kind of walk we should pray for ourselves and for others, and the kind of walk, behavior, we should seek to experience in our own lives. First, it is a worthy walk. Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to walk, live, behave, in a manner worthy of the Lord. Does it mean that, that we must make ourselves worthy of God's favor? That we become people who deserve or merit or earn uh, gifts from God? Does it mean that when our walk is worthy enough of the Lord, that God is obligated to reward us, to pay us what we're worth? The way a great software engineer might be worth, I don't know how much these days, dollars $300,000 to a company like Google or Microsoft or Apple. I don't think so. That's not it. Paul doesn't mean that our walk, that by our walk we become worthy of the Lord's favor. He means we are to walk in a way that reflects the worth of the Lord. God is the one who is worthy, not us. He is worthy of our honor, of our praise, of our worship. He's worthy of being glorified. And in the same way, He's worthy of a people who walk in His will. He's worthy of our obedience to Him. 
So we are to walk in such a way that honors the Lord and shows His worth to the world. Peter wrote something similar. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Walk in a way, manner worthy of the Lord. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, your worthy walk, and glorify God. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord shows the worth, the glory of God. So first, our walk is to be worthy of the Lord. It's to be a walk uh, in His will that reflects His worth. A walk of obedience to Him. And second, we're to have a pleasing walk. And just so uh, we're clear, I'm, I'm sort of separating these. They're sort of a, a flow. They're connected. They're related. You're not really going to have a worthy walk and an unpleasing walk. They go together. But he uses different words to describe this walk. So our walk should be pleasing. Verse, verse 10. Again, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. When we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we show the world His worth. We show the world His glory. Wow, have you seen His life? Did you know He was a follower of Jesus Christ? That's, that's interesting. But even more importantly than that, we fully please Him. It's a little strange to think about, but by the way we behave we can please the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. I don't exactly know what pleasing God fully means. Does it mean by our worthy walk, we bring him pleasure, uh, we put a smile on his face? Whatever it means, though, it's a, it's a positive thing. It's a good thing that we should strive to accomplish. By our walk, we must seek to please God. So what does God please, a God-pleasing walk look like? Well, Romans 8.8, 8, in that verse, Paul tells us what it doesn't look like. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who walk, live, behave based on their fleshly desires, those who seek to fulfill the desires of the flesh cannot please God. Let me state the obvious. Sin does not please God. The things of the flesh do not please God. Therefore, if you want to please God, you must not walk, live, behave in the flesh. But instead, you must walk in the Spirit. Paul makes this clear to the Galatians. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Some people try to, try to uh, stop the desires of the flesh. You know, I'm going to not do that terrible thing anymore. But they never... Walk in the Spirit. You have to be walking in the Spirit, or those things will continue to reappear. So a walk that pleases God is a walk in the Spirit, a walk that seeks to fulfill the desires of the Spirit. And what are those desires? Well, again, verse 9, Paul, Paul's prayer for the Colossians, that you will be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Connection. Remember, it's the Spirit of God through the Word of God that fills us with the knowledge of God and His will. And it's when we're walking in the Spirit, in obedience to God's will, that He's pleased with us. So please God by knowing and walking in obedience to His will. And pray that for one another. One final thing about pleasing God 
Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. So a walk worthy of the Lord, a walk pleasing to God, is a walk of faith. It's not just about doing actions that we perceive to be God's will. It's also a life that daily and continually trusts God in all things. You live based on a trust for God. A life, a walk by faith, fully given to Him. So, so by faith, we're to walk in the Spirit. We're to walk in trust and obedience to the will of God. We are to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Can we sing that together? No, just kidding, because I'm not going to lead us. I can sing over there by myself, but not up here with this on. Trust and obey. That's the kind of walk, a walk of trust and obedience in the Lord. And in that way, our walk is both worthy and pleasing to the Lord. And following uh, from worthy and pleasing walk comes a fruitful walk. Verse 10, again. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work. Our walk, the way we behave, is to bear fruit. In Scripture, bearing fruit includes both inner and outer fruit. If you've read Galatians 5, 22, 23, you know the fruit of the Spirit. The inner fruit of a transformed heart. Fruit such as love and joy and peace and patience. And the outer fruit of a transformed life. Fruit that has uh, sort of, there's the inner transformational fruit. And then how that works out. In the world, fruit such as kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness. Now here in Colossians 1.10, I think Paul is speaking mostly about the fruit that impacts our world. In a sense, he's already prayed for our inner fruit, spiritual maturity in verse 9. And here in verse 10, he's praying for our, our outer fruit. I say this because he relates the fruit to every good work. Good works are actions that impact our world, positively impact our world. They include such things as proclaiming the gospel to those who are lost, helping, ministering to, encouraging those in need, praying for and encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ and those in the world, serving your church, giving financially to the Lord's work, and on and on. There are many other actions, things that are are known to be good works. And it's the fruit, the result of these kinds of good works that Paul is praying for, that they would bear fruit. The things would take place. There would be results. People would come to know the Lord. People would be blessed. People would be encouraged. People would have their needs met. People would worship and honor and glorify God. Now, unfortunately, good works can sometimes get a bad rap. Why? Because we evangelical Christians, that's us, right? As I did in the previous point, and I'll continue to do, uh, spend a lot of time making sure everyone knows that we cannot earn God's favor. We cannot be saved through our good works. In fact, one of our favorite verses is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Many people memorize this. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not 
a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the fact that salvation comes by grace through faith and is not a result of works causes us uh, to downplay the importance of fruit-bearing good works. But that was never Paul's intent. Paul knew that every man-made religion, every religious system teaches some form of salvation, deliverance, whatever, by good works. If you want God, the gods, the force, whatever you call it, to let you into heaven or paradise or nirvana, wherever, you must do sufficient good works. Your good works must outweigh your bad works. In Thailand, there was a saying, it was tambap tambun. Tambap tambun. Tambap, sin, do something wrong. Tambun, make merit, do something good. You got to balance it out if you want to please whoever it might be in your case. And if you do enough good, then you might earn enough merit to be saved. That's a summary, literally, of every human religion that's ever existed. Because unfortunately, that's how the human mind thinks. That's how we think about salvation. Like the Philippian jailer asked Paul in Acts 16, our first question is, what must I do, emphasis on I, do to be saved? We're looking for a list. Therefore, in Ephesians and elsewhere, Paul's intent was to be clear that no amount of good work saves anyone. His intent, however, was not to say that we don't need to do good works, period. Because throughout his letter and all Scripture, the importance of good works is evident. Colossians 1.10 being a good example. Paul wants believers to bear fruit in every good work. That's, that's what he's praying for them. But the best example, I believe, is found in Ephesians 2.10. Not coincidentally, right after the great declaration that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not good works, specifically, Paul writes this. We need to memorize this too. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only are we to bear fruit by doing good works, we were, in fact, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's our purpose for the glory of God to walk in, to live out, to behave, uh, to have behavior that produces or that is good works that God prepares for us. So while human religion teaches you're to be saved, you can be saved possibly, sometimes there's some ifs about it, by your good works. And you never really know if you've done enough, by the way. The Bible teaches that you are saved, that you are saved to do good works. Salvation comes first by grace through faith. Good works follow. Fruit-bearing good works are the outworking of Christ's life in His people. So Paul prays that the Colossians would have a a worthy, pleasing, fruitful walk by doing every good work that God had prepared for them. And along with this, he also prayed for a knowledgeable walk. That's our fourth point. Verse 10. 
Again, so as you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. We touched on this. Let's look at it. Paul prays not only that the Colossians will have a precise, correct knowledge of God's will, but also that they will have a precise, correct epinosis of God Himself. That they would know God. They would know the the true God. The correct God. There are so many uh, versions of who God is. Paul's praying, know the real God. As I already said, God has revealed Himself in His Word. And we can participate in the answer to this prayer to know Him by spending more time reading, meditating, studying, listening to sermons, all kinds of ways uh, to take in His Word. Increasing our knowledge of God. As the proverb says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. As we seek the Lord in His Word and in prayer, we will find Him. Our knowledge of Him will increase. Our, our, our head knowledge, our experiential knowledge, our relational knowledge of Him will increase. But here in Colossians, Paul emphasizes another way for our knowledge of God to increase. It's not without the Scripture. It's alongside the Scripture. He draws the connection between action and knowledge. Bearing fruit in every good work, last point, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In the Greek, the word and is is just a general connector of phrases. It can also mean so then or therefore. Paul knew that as they continued bearing fruit in every good work, they would continue increasing in the knowledge of God. As they got out and got involved in ministry and served the Lord, God met them. And their knowledge of Him would increase. And the reverse is true as well. As we continue to increase in the knowledge of God, we will continue to bear fruit in every good work. I believe that's what Jesus is saying in John chapter 15, verse 5, we'll look at. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. We're connected to Christ. He's our source. Whoever abides in me and I in him, as we abide, as we dwell, as we remain in him, in relationship with him, as our experiential knowledge of him increases, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the connection between our relationship with Christ and our fruit bearing is hopefully clear. They are necessary to one another. And they build on one another. The more you know Christ, the more you'll desire to serve Him by doing good works that bear fruit. And the more you, well, you serve Christ by doing good works that bear fruit, the more you desire to know Him. So Paul prays for a worthy, pleasing, fruitful, knowledgeable walk, which is a lot, right? And so he adds prayer for a powerful walk. Verse 11, Paul prays, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. The power which Paul prayed upon the church is immense. The word power is the Greek dynamis, and the word strengthen is the Greek dynamo, and it's present continuous. They continue on. There's this dynamic, powerful, dynamite power. We're to be continually strengthened with all power. 
And the strengthening power is derived from God's glorious might. Sort of an infinite well, if you will. God's glorious might. We're strengthened with that. So Paul prays that the Colossians will have colossal power. Power for what? Certainly to walk as he's described, but specifically he prays for power in two areas. The purpose of the power is first for endurance. As you walk, as you live out the Christian life, you must endure. This word was often used in a military context, and it meant to stand one's ground. So we're walking, this is a walk, but we're also, we need to stand our ground at times. The kind of endurance Paul prays for is that which enables one to hold one's position in battle. Hold the line. He probably had in mind the the false teachers. They're, They're trying to destroy the church. I don't even know if they knew they were trying to destroy the church. They just are trying to build themselves up, it seems. Paul was praying that the saints would be empowered to stand, to endure, to persevere, to remain steadfast in the gospel of Jesus Christ and not fall to the false philosophies of these teachers. He was praying that they would, to quote Galaxy Quest, never give up, never surrender. I think I can recommend that movie. Or a better, better to quote Sir Winston Churchill, when he was invited back to his alma mater, Harrow, to address the students near the end of his great life of public service, when he took the platform, everyone waited breathlessly upon his words, and they would never forget the, the 14 words they heard. Young gentlemen, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Never, never, never. With that, he sat down. That's what Paul is praying for the Colossians. Colossal power to never, never, never give up. To endure the attacks of the enemy in whatever form until the end. To persevere until the end. So the first purpose of the power Paul prayed for was endurance. Standing firm, never giving up in this walk, in this Christian life. And to that he added patience. As you walk, live out the Christian life, you must be patient. I don't like to be patient. And even more, what the word literally means is long-suffering. That's great. Not just suffering, but long-suffering. It seems that endurance focuses on difficult situations or, or temptations. You're to stand firm in the midst of the attacks of the enemy, including the temptations to follow these false teachers. Patience, on the other hand, is probably in reference to difficult people. Paul was praying that the Colossians would have a long-suffering, a patient spirit as they related to one another in the church and, and to others outside the church. If you remember back in verse 3, he praised them for the love that you have for all the saints. But I'm sure that their love was often tested because people can be a pain. People can be difficult to deal with. Not, not any of you, of course, but there are others. There are people that are a problem. So to fortify their love, their walk of love, Paul prays for God to empower them with patience. And notice one final thing. 
Paul's not praying for behavior only. Okay, guys, just buck up, okay? Uh, Endure, be patient, whether you want to or not, whether it feels good or not, whether it makes you happy or not, just do it. Well, that's Nike's motto, not the Apostle Paul's. Paul is praying that their endurance and patience will include joy. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance endurance and patience with joy. I, I didn't mention it. I, I, had, I was very tempted on like every one of these points to write a whole sermon. Yes. Uh, and this was the big one here with this joy. There's a lot about joy that we confuse and I'm not going to go into it. Because I want to get out of Colossians before summer. That's my hope. Paul prays that as we face difficult circumstances and difficult people, they will not only have patience and endurance, but joy. He wants our walk to be joyful. It's this unique and amazing joy in difficulty that's the mark of a true Christian walk. You know, anybody can be joyful, happy. By the way, joy and happy are synonymous. You know, we want to make them different. There's a sermon. No, just kidding. Uh, but joy, it's, it's joy. I mean, remember John the Baptist back in uh, pre-Christmas where he leapt for joy. I mean, it's, it's an expressive thing. It's not this stoic acceptance So, it's unique among those who follow Jesus Christ. It's a mark of a true Christian walk to have joy in difficult circumstances. For us, difficulties in this life do not negate our joy in the Lord. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, as servants of the Lord, we are sorrowful, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He's not negating that there will be sorrows and difficulties and pain and suffering in this life. He's he's saying that, but there's an underpinning rejoicing, an underpinning joy for those who are in Christ, which means even in the midst of sorrowful times, difficult times of grieving, we can always rejoice in the Lord. Some people say we don't rejoice in our circumstances. Well, yes, we do. Our circumstances that we're in Jesus Christ. Maybe we don't result rejoice in these bad circumstances. We rejoice in the circumstances that Christ saved you. Rejoice that God is still in control in these difficulties. Rejoice that the sorrows of this world are temporal and our joy in the Lord is eternal. But this joy in times of endurance and patience is not always easy. It can only come through the power of His glorious might. Therefore, we must pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe most often when they're experiencing sorrows and difficulties, pray that they'll also experience joy. Lord, by the power, by Your power, give them endurance and difficulties and patience with people. And as they face these difficulties, give them joy in you. We need to pray like that for one another. Because a church, a church with endurance and patience and joy will be a great church. It's a church that walks in the power of the Lord, bearing fruit with every good work. Amen? And that takes us to our final point. Paul prays for a thankful walk. 
flowing out of the joy we have in the Lord, verse 12 begins, giving thanks to the Father. Give thanks with them. You know, I should take up a singing career. No. Along with joy, an attitude of thanksgiving should permeate our walks with the Lord. We should be joyful, thankful people. We cannot walk worthy of Him with, without constantly giving Him thanks for who He is and what He has done for us. But for some reason, uh, I think it's sin, but uh, we humans find it difficult to give thanks. I'm reminded of the story in Luke 17 when Jesus cleansed uh, 10 leopards. Leopards, <laughs> He didn't cleanse any leopards. Spots removed, right? <laughs> leopards, sorry. only one leper returned to thank him those nine lepers were not unique those nine unthankful lepers were not unique recently I read this story many years ago Northwestern University had a life-saving team that assisted passengers on Lake Michigan boats on September 8, 1860 the boat, the Lady Elgin began to fill with water and sink. And a ministerial student, he was in seminary, named Edward Spencer personally rescued 17 people. The exposure from that episode permanently damaged his health, and he was unable to continue his preparation for ministry. Some years later, when he died, it was noted that not one of the 17 people he had saved ever came to thank him. People have trouble humbling themselves and giving thanks to one another and to God. But we must be different, because we are different. Believers who walk in a manner worthy of the Lord must continually give thanks to God for for many things. But specifically, if this was the only one, salvation is what I'm going to talk about. If, If, you know, God saved us and then life was hell, Thank Him, because eternity is going to be sweet, right? But it's not. Life is not hell in Christ, so He gives us both. But but specifically, we thank Him for our salvation. Paul lists three specific reasons to thank Him for our salvation in, in verses 12 through 14. First, in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Former pagans of Colossae and Riverside, God the Father, through His Son Jesus Christ, has accomplished a great work in your life. He has qualified you. You were not qualified, and you could not qualify yourself. He has qualified you in Christ to share in the inheritance of the saints, the holy ones, because now you're one of them. Remember, He addresses the Colossians as saints. This inheritance was formerly exclusively Israel's, but through Christ it now extends to Gentile believers. We become co-heirs with Jewish believers and joint heirs with Jesus. This should cause us to thank the Father. Lord, I can't thank you enough that you qualified me. Because our salvation and our inheritance, our eternal life and all, So much that we don't even understand comes as a divine gift. 
Again, the Father through the Son qualified us for this inheritance. We did not, could not earn it with any good works, but we're supposed to do good works. Let me just remember that. This great inheritance is a free gift from God to those who trust in Him. And the fact that our inheritance is in the light gives us further reason to thank God for our salvation. In saving us, He's called us out of darkness into the light. You and I once lived in darkness. We were slaves to our sin. We were separated from God. We were destined to experience eternal damnation and the wrath of God. But Peter wrote, uh, But now you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The Father qualified you for this inheritance. He chose you to be one of His people. He called you out of darkness into the light. Why? That you may proclaim His excellencies. That you might give Him thanks in such a way that He's glorified in all the earth. So first, we give thanks to God for our salvation because God not only qualified us to be saved, but He also gives us a great inheritance. And related to that, in verse 13, we find the next reason for a thankful walk. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So we talked about the light and the darkness. The word transferred is used in other places to describe a mighty king picking up a whole population and deporting them to another realm. That's already happened. That's been accomplished in your life if you've trusted in Christ. Once we lived in darkness, but now we've been deported into the light, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. I'd like to get, you know, that's a good place to get deported to, right? And as those who are in the beloved, His beloved Son's kingdom, we too will experience the Father's love. We are His children as well, adopted into His family. We too will be beloved children for all eternity. For this reason, we give thanks to God our Father. And then the final reason for thanksgiving is as uh, verse 14 says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We've been redeemed. God purchased us from uh, darkness, from the slave market and our sins. We were in slavery to sin and He purchased us out and forgave our sins. Our sins are no longer counted against us. Why? Because we're in Christ in whom we have redemption. In Christ we experience redemption and forgiveness of sins. Because of Christ, His work on the cross which paid the price for our our redemption with His blood. And Christ took our sins upon Himself. Uh, Paul says uh, to the Corinthians, He became sin for us. Took our sins upon Himself that we might be forgiven. And our response must be one of faith and undying thanksgiving. Amen and amen. And that concludes Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. And I pray that this prayer becomes a model for us to pray for one another. Why not commit yourself to pray as Paul did? 
Not that you uh, can't or shouldn't pray for health and safety and security and good relationships. But why not commit yourself to pray for both the spiritual maturity and earthly walk of your fellow believers? You can just open the Bible to Colossians 1, 9-14. There's another similar one in chapter 1 of Ephesians as well. If you want some variety, read it and pray it for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because a church with, which is growing in the knowledge of God and His will and, and is walking in a worthy manner to the Lord will do great things. So I'd call upon you as I call upon myself to pray fervently and regularly for the spiritual maturity and earthly walk of your fellow church members. I mean, you can do it to those, with those in your small group. You can do it for those in your family. You can just pick out someone, but you can also have a... I mean, Paul's making a general prayer for the whole church. I think that's a good thing as well. Pray for the whole church. That we would know the will of God. That we would know God. We would walk in His ways, in His will. Maybe uh, if I could request, put me at the top of your list. Self-serving, I know, but I, I, could, I could use those prayers as we all could. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this model of prayer that Paul gives us. Lord, so often we focus on the here and now, the difficulties we experience, and that's fine. Lord, but I pray we would, could think beyond that in our times of prayer, as we pray for one another, or do we think about our spiritual needs, think about our walk with you in this world, and we would lift one another up. That we would put our spiritual needs into your hands as well, Father. Lord, and, and beyond that, that we would seek to be these kind of people in our lives. That we would seek to be the spiritually mature through your word, that we would seek to have this walk that's worthy unto you, Father. I pray that for myself, and I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, on that note, if you'd like to stand with me one last time as we close out our time of...